Hi, my name is Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot audio ground school podcast hey pilots this is nick again did you guys know that part-time pilot now has a private pilot test prep book that you can buy on amazon it's a physical book that you can buy on amazon to help prep for your faa written exam so it's like the other test prep books out there, you know, the Jepson, Asa, or the Gleam, Glime, however you pronounce it. It's just like those, but I called ours the ultimate private pilot test prep because not only does it give you a synopsis of each subject, like the cliff notes, like those other books do, and then it gives you FAA written questions to practice and quiz yourself on to, to prep for the test, but it also goes much, much further, and that's why we call it the ultimate private pilot test prep book. So for each subject, it also has a QR code so that as you're reading it, if you want more information, you can scan the QR code on your phone or your tablet, and it will immediately pull up a YouTube video that you can watch on the subject. There's also QR codes in there for additional downloads, including FAA, PDFs, subject area checklists, and more PDFs from us that you can download for free. It also includes a coupon code and QR code where you can go enroll in online practice tests for free and receive the PDF version of the book completely free. All that is with simple, easy to use QR codes inside the book. And then we also, not only does it have the cliff notes of all the information, but it also includes mnemonic devices and visual aids, such as diagrams, tables, and images that are labeled, such as like a METAR that is labeled every single thing that is included and deciphered in the METAR or a TAF. Also the performance charts, step-by-step labeled steps on performance calculation charts. So it's not just cliff note bullet points, it's that plus much, much more, these visual aids, all in 404 pages in the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book, and it is only $37. So you can go check that out on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes, so go check it out. Hello and welcome in. My name is Nick Smith. This is the Audio Ground School podcast by Part-Time Pilot. I, your host, go through the online ground school at Part-Time Pilot. Every single lesson for you guys in audio format. So thank you for joining me. Let's get right into it this week. You don't really have any announcements or anything like that. I'm just excited to get through these lessons. Again, we have the first couple segments. The first segment is where I'm going to read off listener reviews. So let's go ahead and read off a couple reviews. This is again from Trustpilot. So if you want to leave a review, get 
read off on the podcast. You can do it on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review there. Or you can go to trustpilot.com. It's like a review page where businesses can create a profile. Customers can review them. They do a good job of making sure you can't like doctor reviews and everything like that. All right, so let's read off a couple of there. This one's from Xavier, part-time pilot for the win. Nick has put together a great product and that has me very confident in taking the private pilot airplane exam. If you're just beginning this course, we'll have you in the sky in no time. Thanks, Nick. That's five-star review from Xavier. Thank you so much. The next one is from La Kenya. Five-star review. This course is bang for the buck. This course is bang for the buck. Highly communicative and lots of solid and diverse material to offer. If you're nervous, you'll take comfort in knowing they offer instruction in various ways. Best value compared to others and it doesn't expire. That's the commitment and interaction I was looking for. I looked into what was available online before making the financial commitment and I was impressed. I highly recommend and I'm confident any student will learn the material on their journey to becoming an aviator. We'll do one more. This one is from Aaron. Massive help. Five stars. I highly recommend Part to Pilot. I was so stressed and overwhelmed at the thought of taking the written. This program did a great job of breaking everything down into small lessons. I took my written on 729 and got a 92%. Don't wait. Sign up now. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you so much, LaKenya. And thank you so much, Xavier, for those great and awesome reviews. Those are just kind of the three of the last like 10 reviews I've gotten on trustpilot.com. We have a overall 4.9 rating. We got like 94% five stars, 5% four stars, and one three-star review, which was actually a miscommunication. So I'm proud of those reviews. It's shown that we've made a good product that was designed for you guys, the student pilots. So I appreciate that you guys are feeling the same way. All right, let's go to our next segment. And this segment is going to, you know, I got to get some music for these segments, a little like a little ditty or some type of thing. So you guys know when these segments are coming. But the next segment is the listener questions. So you can ask us a question by email us at team at parttimepilot.com that you want read off on the podcast. Just send us an email. Let us know it's for the podcast. Or you can join our Facebook study group and ask us a question on there. This one comes from the Facebook study group a couple weeks ago. All right, this question comes from Matt. It's a very specific question to a situation where Matt had 30 hours 10 years ago of helicopter rotorcraft time. And it was all dual with the instructor. And he's saying now he's going for fixed wing. And flying is not a problem for me. He does a lot on 250 hours of simulator training. So he's very confident. And now he's going for airplane. And he's saying in FAR 61109, it doesn't specify that the 40 hours total flight time and 20 hours of that that has to be dual must be in an ASEL or an airplane single engine land. So he's saying, can he get credit for that, you know, 10 years ago, the 30 hours of dual rotor wing training? He also has a question that says there's sub requirements and those do list that it has to be airplane single engine land so he says there's three hours dual airplane single engine land cross-country flight and then a three hours of dual airplane single engine land of night flying where you have to have a cross-country of 100 nautical miles and you have 10 takeoff and landings to a full stop so he's asking could i do a night cross-country that's three hours long and then just knock both the night and the cross country out in the same flight. So my answer is to this is 
technically he's right. So the the we'll start with the first one. Can he use that helicopter time to his total time? So he had 30 hours of ins- dual instructor time, and you need 40 hours total. So the 30 hours does apply to his total of 40 hours and 20 hours of instructor. So technically he has 30 hours dual and 30 hours total flight time because it doesn't specify it has to be airplane single engine land. But all these sub requirements that are three hours dual cross country, three hours night flight, three hours dual instrument, three hours dual check ride prep, 10 hours solo cross country, five hours and some other things, right? And some other sub requirements. He has none of those. So he has zero hours on all of those because he hasn't flown in an airplane single engine land. So technically he is right. He can get credit for those total hours, but he still has to go through and meet all these requirements and prove to his instructor that he can move on to the next phase, right? So if he does a dual cross-country flight, he has to perform well enough so that the instructor believes in him enough and is comfortable enough with endorsing him to fly solo cross countries, right? It's very variable based on the instructor. And if he goes to a part 141 school, they're going to have even more requirements. And this is why I always preach part 61. You know, most schools, so every school is part 61 just by being a flight school. But a school can be a part 141 if they have the FAA, if they follow an FAA. So they basically have the FAA review their curriculum. And what they usually do is they usually add more requirements. They have stage checks and things like that. We have to take ground exams and certain stage check exams in flight. And this added requirement usually adds to the cost and makes it much less flexible for someone like Matt who wants to try and just, you know, use his old time and try and use that to his advantage and get it done in as soon as time as, as possible. So that's why part 61, I would recommend he go to a part 61 if he wants to have any chance of this. And then it depends on his instructor. How willing is his instructor to be to kind of cut these corners? Because technically he's right. He could do three hours of dual cross country and three hours of night. So he could do that three hour long cross country flight at night and he could get that three hours of night flying done and that three hours of cross country flying done. But then he's still going to have... so. Then the sub-requirements for the night flying, they have to do a cross-country of at least 100 nautical miles. So as long as they make sure their cross-country flight, if it's three hours, it's probably 100 nautical miles. So he's good there. But then you have to get 10 takeoffs and landings to a full stop. So if you're flying for three hours, right, so to get there, to get to a destination airport and back, when you get back after flying for three hours, you're going to have to do 10 takeoffs and landings to a full stop. That's going to be another hour or two. So you got to think about that. Are you really going to do that as your instructor? really going to do a four to five hour flight night to where you really knock that out. And it so it says, yeah, three hours, but then you have to do three hours of that cross country and then you have to do the 10 takeoffs and landings. So it's really going to be more than three hours if you try and do it this way. To get those sub requirements, it's going to throw you off and not exactly. And you're going to have a really long flight at night, which I don't think is smart to do. Secondly, If you do all your cross-country flying, dual flying at night, is your instructor going to be like, yeah, I feel comfortable with you doing day cross-country flights? There are a lot of things that are different in the daytime. The winds, it's, you know, it's windier. Your pilot and dead reckoning is a lot different because, you know, the vision, the daytime scanning, the daytime vision is different. You know, it's harder to see cities and towns and stuff like that. It's harder to pick out different things so there's a lot different in the day than at night so if i was an instructor 
I would not endorse my student without seeing them fly in day and night, both separately. So that's the other thing. So technically, he's right. The law says that he can use those helicopter hours towards his total hours, and he can, you know, double up on the night and the cross-country flight. But he also has to meet those sub requirements of so those 10 takeoffs and landings, a full stop at night. So he's got to think about that. That's going to be another night flight or a really long four to five hour long flight, which I don't know. I would not advise that. And I don't think, I don't know if you'll be able to fly an instructor that will want to do that. And then it's all about how comfortable your instructor feels to be able to endorse you for those next stages, like flying solo cross country during the day. If you haven't even done that with them yet, will you be able to find an instructor? I personally, again, would not recommend it. So yeah, there's ways to cut corners. If you look at the nuances in the laws, you know, it's really all about you and your instructor feeling comfortable with advancing you to the next step in those sub requirements. That's why they're there. And you want to be smart about that, not try and cut too many corners. All right. So let's get on. That that was the listener question of the day. That was a great question. Good job, Matt. Very specific. Let's move on to the lessons for today. All right, we are on section 12, cross-country planning of the online ground school. If you're following along, this is your step one online ground school private pilot lessons. This is the bulk of all the content, right? We do have, you know, step one is the lesson. Step two is practice test. Step three is how you get your endorsement. We just changed that, by the way. We are now custom. So before we would go the extra step, and this is why I think, you know, 99.9% of our students do pass the FA written exam is because we would go the extra step. So we would have students also not only take the practice test, but answer five kind of fundamental questions in their own words. And we would take those questions and their practice test results and review them. We now, instead of asking the same five questions to to people, to everybody, we see the results of your practice test. We create a custom practice test report. And based off what you miss, we tell you the question code, the subjects, We tell you the question, the subject code, the subject, and some review questions that we came up with that we think you should know that will help you for the written exam and understanding the concept. And so so once you get through that, that's what step three is all about. And that's our entire design of the course to ensure that you pass your FA written exam. So I kind of went on a tangent here, but that is an update that I wanted to talk about. I kind of forgot to mention that in the updates, but the step one course, that's where all the lessons, videos, mnemonic devices, images, examples, and quizzes are going to be. You're gonna learn all that there, then go through the practice test and endorsement process. And in that step one course in section 12 is cross country planning. That's what we've been doing. We've been going through each week one of these lessons, one or two of these lessons and building sort of this nav log in our heads. We first started off, we came up with our checkpoints using a sectional chart. We came up with our altitudes. We measured the distances between our checkpoints. Then we measured the courses. We found the variation on the chart, our isogonic lines. We went from true courses to magnetic courses, right? Then we gathered winds, temperatures for all our checkpoints. Then we calculated distance to climb and distance to descend in the last couple episodes. And then we adjusted our first couple checkpoints and our last couple checkpoints so that would make it easier so that we have legs of flight that are just climb, legs of flight that are just cruise, and then legs of flight that are just descent will make everything a lot easier to calculate. And you'll know, hey, when I reach this lake or whatever your checkpoint is, this is when I'm at the top of climb or this is when I'm at the top of descent. So we did that. And then last episode, we covered airspeeds and we did a breakdown and a review of what airspeeds are indicated airspeed calibrated airspeed true airspeed and ground speed then we talked about how we're going to use these different airspeeds 
what we're going to target for different phases of flight to calculate what we really need in the end is true airspeed air so that we can get ground speeds. So in this first lesson that we're going to do today, actually probably the only lesson we'll do today, lesson 11 on calculating airspeed during climb. So we're going to calculate, and this is the best way that I found to do it, calculate airspeed during climb differently than we would calculate airspeed during cruise and descent. So for climb, we're going to create a column on our nav log that says indicated airspeed. And for our all our legs of flight that are climb, we're going to put in the indicated airspeed that we target. Because when you're climbing, you're usually targeting an indicated airspeed when you fly, right? You're pulling and pushing on that yoke, you know, trimming your flight to an airspeed, usually best rate of climb on the Cherokee Warrior. That's about 79 knots. So you're looking for that indicated airspeed. That's what you're targeting. So let's start with that to get to a true airspeed and then a ground speed during our climb phases of flight. For cruise and descent, you're not really focused on an airspeed so much, indicated airspeed so much. You're focused on your power setting. So we're going to make another column in our nav log, and then we're going to, that's going to be for power setting or RPM. And we're going to target, so in our climb phase of flight, that would be we can just leave that. We could put that as the max RPM because, you know, you're going full power on climb and takeoff. So you can put that as max RPM, but or you can just leave a blank because we're not going to use it. But it's really meant for the legs of flight that are for cruise. And on those ones, the indicated airspeed column will be blank, but we'll have targeted RPM that we'll put in there. And when you go through your flight lessons, you kind of know and understand your instructor is going to show you, you know, once you get up to cruise, let's go to this RPM. Let's back it off from the never, you know, the red line. And then let's lean the fuel mixture and be efficient with the fuel and our power setting. And so that's kind of how you learn and cruise. And then descent, you know, you're going to back that down to a lower RPM to start descending. So you're going to lower your power to where you start descending. Usually for Cherokee Warrior, I think it's like 1400, 1500, 1600 RPM, something like that. Or it could be even higher depending on your attitude. So that's what we're going to do. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how to calculate airspeed during climb using that targeted indicated airspeed. And then next week, we'll talk about calculating airspeed during cruise and descent using that targeted RPM that we talked about. So let's get to the calculations. To calculate your true airspeed during all the checkpoints during climb, you want to perform the following steps. So you want to write in the best rate of climb speed for your aircraft. Again, this is 79 knots for the Cherokee Warrior in the indicated airspeed column of your cross-country planner for all checkpoints during the climb phase. At each checkpoint and corresponding altitude in flight, use the temperature and altitude along with your E6B to calculate a true airspeed. So we're gonna use the fact that indicated airspeed is the same as calibrated airspeed. We're assuming that it's the same because the errors are negligible. Talked about that in the last episode. And then we can use our E6B to go from calibrated airspeed to a true airspeed. On your E6B, there will be a small window just to the right of the center where you match the pressure altitude, which this is the same altitude on your cross-country planner, with the temperature at that altitude in degrees Celsius. So since we're in climb, you might think like, well, do I use the, let's say we're climbing from 2,000 feet to 4,000 feet from checkpoint one to checkpoint two. Do I use 2,000 feet or do I use 4,000 feet? I like to split the middle when I'm calculating my airspeeds. So I like to use 3000 feet for my airspeed. Now, again, this is all stuff. I just want to throw out this disclaimer that we go above and beyond with the online ground school. This is for stuff that you're going to use for flight planning, actually calculating your performance, your cross country planning 
in an accurate way. And so you can explain it on your check ride scenario. This is not necessarily something that the FAA written is going to ask. However, the E6B, you will need to know how to use that for the FAA written, although we're seeing them ask a lot less questions on that. But that's just a disclaimer right there about the FAA written exam. So again, we're going to use that altitude that's kind of in between our two checkpoint altitudes because we're climbing. So we're going to be kind of, we'll use that middle altitude and we're going to match that up with the temperature. And again, you can do the same with temperature. Just interpolate between the two temperatures at those two checkpoints. So if at checkpoint one, it's at 2000, you're starting at 2000 feet and 20 degrees Celsius and checkpoint two, you're at 4,000 feet and 15 degrees Celsius. Just take the middle and use that for this leg of flight. So you'll do 3000 feet. That's in the middle of 2000, 4,000. And then, you know, 17 or 18 degrees is between 15 and 20 degrees. So you'll use that as your temperature. You're going to match that up in the window to the right. So it's just to the right of center. You'll see temperature and pressure altitude in the window. So you match the pressure altitude. You line that up by spinning the wheel with the temperature. Once the two are lined up, you're going to read your true airspeed above your indicated airspeed on the outer two dials of the E6B. It says, and you can read these instructions right on your E6B wheel in the white portion, right in the middle. It says for true airspeed and density altitude, set air temperature over pressure altitude, read CAS over true airspeed. So that's calibrated airspeed over true airspeed. So, sorry, it says read true airspeed over calibrated airspeed. I switched those, switched those up. And again, remember, we said calibrated airspeed is the same as indicated airspeed. We're assuming it's the same because again, going back to last lesson, at the speeds we fly at, the airs are negligible. So once we line up the temperature with the pressure altitude, again, of that middle, we're climbing. So the middle of our climb, we'll use that altitude and that temperature. We're then just going to look at the edges, edge of the white wheel on our E6B. And we're going to find our indicated airspeed. In the online ground school, if you're following along in the lesson, which I highly recommend you do, we have an example. I have a picture of an E6B. I have every single thing labeled and outlined. I have the, the window outline that I'm talking about, the pressure altitude labeled, the temperature labeled. We have it lined up and then we show, we point out the indicated airspeed on the white wheel. And then outside that white wheel, there's a bigger kind of wheel in black, which also has a scale and numbers on it. And that's where you would read your true airspeed, where that lines up with your indicated airspeed. So we'll do an example here in a sec. So basically just a quick example though, Going back, let's say our altitude was 3,000 feet and our temperature was 18 degrees. We would line up 3,000 feet and 18 degrees in that window. And then we would look to on the outermost scale on the white wheel, we would look for our indicated airspeed. Let's say, again, we're climbing. So let's say that's 79 knots on that, that outside scale of that white wheel. And then directly above that, what is our true airspeed reading on the black scale? So I'm not doing this example right now, but that's what you would do. You look for 79 and directly above 79 on the outermost scale in black, you're going to read off what that is in true airspeed. Now, the one thing I want to mention is the scales get kind of funny with how many digits they show. Just use kind of common sense. People can kind of make it more difficult than it really is between 70, 80, 90, all those numbers, they're, they're labeled. 70s labeled, 80s labeled, 90s labeled for the airspeeds on the outer scales. So that's easy. But once you get to 100, it just says 10. Excuse me, my voice cracked. <laughs> I'm going through puberty again here. So it just says 10 and then 11, 12, 13. Just add a zero to that. So 10 is 100, 11 is 110, 
12 is 120 when you're dealing with air speeds. When you're dealing with gallons, obviously that's different with gallons. Just use your common sense. Does it make sense that it's 110 gallons or does it make sense that it's 11 gallon? Okay. So right now we're using this rate wheel to calculate true airspeed from indicated aka calibrated airspeed. So again, we'll go over an example, but a couple notes here. So you're going to want to do this for each leg of climb on your nav log. So let's say you have between checkpoint one and two and checkpoint two and three, you're climbing. So you have two legs of climb flight. Okay. So you want to do, you would want to take the middle altitude of the first leg and the middle temperature and your 79 knots, your best rate of climb indicated airspeed to find your true airspeed. And you'd write that in your nav log. Then you do that again for your second leg of climb flight again with a new middle altitude. That would be the altitude between checkpoints two and three, right? If checkpoint two is 4,000 feet and checkpoint three is 7,000 feet, you'd pick the middle of that, which is 5,500 feet. And you'd pick the middle temperature. And then again, you're still climbing at best rate of climb speed. So you'd still use that as your indicator speed to get your true airspeed and jot that down in your climb performance. And now you have for the climb part of your flight, you have true airspeed, which is what we want. We're one more step closer to getting ground speed, which is ultimately what we want. A couple notes, some questions from the FAA may be about the general use of E6B. And a lot of these questions can be answered by simply reading the labels and instructions on the E6B themselves. Remember, you are allowed your E6B and therefore reading an answer from your E6B is not cheating one bit. For example, the FAA might ask on which scale you would read distance in miles, outer scale, or time, inner and far inner scales. And both these are labeled as such on the E6B. So a lot of times the FAA written has sort of shied away from having us do multiple calculation type problems. They've kind of made it shorter a little bit more so rote memorization concept based things to get, make sure you have a general understanding of this stuff. So. On the E6B, a lot of these questions are on the actual E6B, which you'll have. It's like having a cheat sheet, right? Another note, a couple general rules to remember when using the calculator side of the E6B. How fast goes first? And this is actually an FA written question that I've seen in the past. This means that if you want to calculate a rate, either a fuel consumption rate or an airspeed, then you should set the true index at the rate value on the outer scale before reading off the distance over the time or the gallons over the time. So we didn't get into using the E6B for rate. We will do that later. Actually, at the end of this section, we'll have examples using a electronic E6B and a paper E6B. And we'll go over some of these things, how you can find distance, time, or ground speed. So that's a rate equation, or you can find time, fuel consumption, or fuel consumption rate, another rate equation. So when you do that, when you're working with fuel consumption rate or ground speed to get, you know, either time or distance or fuel used. So you want to remember where you start with by how fast goes first. So for example, ground speed, that's how fast or fuel consumption rate. That's how fast you're using fuel. You want to put that under the true index and then you read off your either distance over your time or your gallons over. All right. So that's just one thing to remember and a question you might get on the exam. But again, don't worry, we're going to cover more examples of the E6B a little bit later. Right now, we just want to worry about getting true airspeed from indicated airspeed. But one more note, does the answer make sense? 
This is a thing I tell all my students after you calculate, especially on an exam, especially for a flight, sit back, clear your mind a little bit and say, does this answer in the context of everything else, does it make sense? This is what you should ask yourself after every E6B calculation. If you're flying at a speed of 100 knots, your E6B tells you that it will take you two hours to fly 20 miles and you can easily think of this and understand that it doesn't make sense, right? 100 nautical miles per hour and I'm flying for two hours, but I've only gone 20 miles. That just doesn't make sense. I should be 200 miles. So just think of it conceptually if it actually just makes sense and it's basic. You know, just think of someone who's like, does that make sense to you? And think what you would think about. You would think about all the context and whether or not that makes sense. So that's a good check, mental check on yourself. All right, so let's get into an example. Calculate true airspeed for climb. So in order to determine the true airspeed during the climb portion of your flight, you need your E6B flight game. So we're gonna perform an example. We're gonna do it a couple times for a couple different check. First, we need to make a few assumptions and decisions. The first thing we need to decide is the indicated airspeed we will plan to target during our climb out. Do you plan to climb the best rate of climb or the best angle of climb? If there is no obstacle near the runway, then the default climb speed for pilots is the best rate of climb speed or VY. Whether you choose VY or VX, both should be listed on the AFM POH for your aircraft. For this example, let's assume we are going to target the best rate of climb speed for a Piper Cherokee of 79 knots. Next, we need the temperature and altitude we expect at each checkpoint during our climb. If you followed the cross-country planning steps outlined in this book or course, then you will already have an altitude and temperature for each checkpoint. Let's assume a flight plan with the following checkpoint information. Our departure airport is a pressure altitude of 650 feet. Checkpoint one is at an air pressure altitude of 3,150 feet with a temperature of 18 degrees. We're flying at our indicated airspeed of 79 knots and our calibrated airspeed is assumed the same as our indicated airspeed. Checkpoint two is at a pressure altitude of 5,200 feet, temperature of 14 degrees. Again, we're flying at indicated airspeed 79 knots, which is the same as calibrated airspeed. And checkpoint three, we're up to pressure altitude of 8,500 feet, temperature of nine degrees Celsius. And again, we're climbing at 79 knots. So let's take out our E6B and calculate our true airspeed at each checkpoint. So again, the first thing you wanna do is spin the wheel of your E6B so that your expected air temperature, and so we're gonna start at our first checkpoint. So between checkpoint one and checkpoint two, we have a pressure altitude of 3150 and a pressure altitude of 5200. So we're gonna start with our departure airport, that leg of flight from our departure to checkpoint one, right? That's our first leg of climb flight where we want that true airspeed. So that's gonna be listed as the airspeed to get to that checkpoint. So on our row for checkpoint one, this is where we're gonna write that true airspeed on our row in our nav log for checkpoint one, right? But that's a leg of flight to get to checkpoint one from our departure airport. Now there's two ways you can do this. Now I do it differently than how I did it in the course when I do my own flight planning because I think it's a little bit more accurate, but it's easier to understand the way I put it in the course. So if you're wondering why, I'll talk about it here on the audio lesson, but the way I did it in the course is I just used the pressure altitude and temperature at our destination checkpoint. So for the leg of flight, where we're talking about airspeed that we're gonna fly from departure airport to checkpoint one, I used to, to calculate that on the E6B, I used the pressure altitude and the temperature at checkpoint one. That's what I do here in these examples, right? Now in real life, what I do is I say, okay, well, let's use a middle value because we're climbing this whole time. So we're not flying the whole time at our pressure altitude of 3,150 feet. We're actually climbing from 650 feet to 3,150 feet. 
So let's use a middle value, you know, something between 650 and 3,150. That, that middle value would be about like 1,800. And then I do the same for temperature. I take the temperature at the surface and between that and the temperature at 3,150. So let's say the temperature at the surface is 22 degrees. Temperature at 3,150 is 18 degrees. I would use 20 degrees. So I would use, you know, the middle altitude and the middle temperature because that's, I feel, a better estimation of, you know, that leg of flight. But here in the online ground school lesson, I just use the values at the destination checkpoint just to be, to make more sense. I'll talk about how to do that, do it both ways here in the audio lesson, but I just want you to know it's up to you on how you want to do that. So let's get to the example. So for checkpoint one, this is on the row in your nav log for checkpoint one. This is where you were trying to get the true airspeed for that row. Here in the example, I just use the values at our destination of checkpoint one, a pressure altitude of 3,150 and a temperature of 18 degrees. So in the little window to the right of center of our E6B, I line up the temperature on the outside scale on the part that spins on the wheel with the pressure altitude inside the window. So I line up 18 degrees with 3,150. Once that's lined up, I then make sure the wheel doesn't spin. And I find on the outside most scale of the wheel that spins, the white wheel that spins, I find our indicated airspeed or AKA our calibrated airspeed of 79 knots. And then I look just above 79 knots on the outer, outermost scale on the part that doesn't spin. And I read off eight in this example, 84 knots for our true airspeed. And I jot down 84 knots on the checkpoint one row for our nav log. Now, again, I mentioned I do it a little bit differently. I would take the middle of our leg of flight. So our middle of our leg of flight is between 650 and 3,150 feet. So that's about 1,800 feet or sorry. Yeah, about 1,800 feet. So I'd use 1,800 feet pressure altitude. And then if we're taking off where the temperature is 22 degrees, we're going to checkpoint one where it's 18 degrees in between that's 20 degrees. So I'd use 1800 feet and 20 degrees. I would line those up, find 79 knots, and then read off the true airspeed above that. It's probably not going to change too much. All right. Next example is checkpoint two. Again, here in the online ground school, I'm just doing the destination numbers, the numbers at our destination. So pressure altitude is 5,200 feet. Temperature is 14 degrees. So if I line up 5,200 feet with 14 degrees in that window. I then again, look for 79 knots. We're still flying at the best rate of climb. And above that, I find a true airspeed of 87 knots, true airspeed. And you can do this along with me with your E6B to see if you get these same values. And then again, if we were doing the sort of middle of the leg thing, checkpoint one was at 3,100 feet. Checkpoint two is at 5,100 feet. So the middle of that is about 4,000 feet. And then checkpoint one has 18 degrees, checkpoint two, 14 degrees, middle of that 16 degrees. So I would use 4,016 degrees if I was doing that method, which again, I like to do personally. All right, so checkpoint three now, we have a pressure altitude of 8,500 feet, temperature of nine degrees. So I line up 8,500 feet with nine degrees in the window. Again, we're still climbing at 79 knots. So I find 79 knots on the outermost scale, the wheel that spins, and then I read off the true airspeed on the outer outermost scale on the part of the E6B that doesn't spin to get 92 knots of true airspeed. So again, follow along with your own E6B and see if you got 92 knots true airspeed. Now, again, if I were to do that middle of the road thing, checkpoint two is at 5,200 feet pressure altitude, checkpoint three is at 8,500 feet. So middle of that is about 6,800 feet for the altitude and temperature is from 14 degrees to nine degrees. Middle of that is about like 11 or 12 degrees. So I would use like 12 degrees and 6,800 feet 
And I would line those up and then read off the true airspeed above our 70 knots indicated airspeed. All right. So that was the examples. By the way, in the lesson here, I have a picture of an E6B on each one of these checkpoints. I have exactly you know, pointed out the indicated airspeed, the true airspeed, excuse me, the pressure altitude, the temperature on each one of these with a box, a note box saying what I did and how I read that off. And then we have a video. So we have a video lesson. I'll post that in the show notes for you guys as well. That's going to be it for today's episode. So next week, we're going to then calculate the true airspeed for the rest of our nav log. So this was just climb, remember? Now for cruise, we're not targeting an indicated airspeed. We're targeting an RPM. So there's another way to calculate true airspeed, and we're going to use our cruise performance chart from our POH or AFM. And I'm going to explain how to do that there. The FA written does have some cruise performance charts and figures, so we'll talk about those as well in next week's episode. All right, thank you guys for joining me, and until next week, happy studying and safe flying. See you guys next week. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft 
when this happens, if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so read. for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the online ground school. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.